A readings from Acts 16 this morning. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted to take Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. When they came upon and when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city for some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer and we sat down and spoke to the woman who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized in her whole household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, Come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. The word of the Lord. As we make our way through the book of Acts, we're asking the question, what does it mean to be the faithful people of God? And here Luke, as he's writing to Theophilus, strings together a number of smaller vignettes which set up Paul going into Macedonia, which is the first time the gospel goes into what we would call Europe. But there are also vignettes in which Luke continues to bring to the foreground the work of the Spirit that might be forgotten or in the background if he did not point it out to us. And so we see this morning to be the faithful people of God is to really heed the leading of the Spirit, to listen to his voice, to grow in wisdom and discerning that voice, and in our ability to follow, right, to obey the voice of the Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit is much in every way in this passage. And I'd like you to see five aspects of the Spirit at work. One will be the hope of the Spirit. Two will be the humility of the Spirit. Three will be the life of the Spirit. Four will be the leading of the Spirit. Five will be the power of the Spirit. So how do we see, first of all, the hope of the Spirit? Well, we're introduced for the first time here to Timothy, someone we haven't met, but of course we know, if we know the Bible, he becomes one of the great saints of the early church, a protege of Paul. Paul will write two letters to him, 
And in those letters, we learn that uh, Timothy is not only the son of a believing mother, but also a believing grandmother. His grandmother Lois, his mother Eunice invested in him and raised him in the faith. But we also know here, or note, that we're told that his father was a Greek. And that is an issue because at the time, if your father was Greek, then you weren't Jewish. So here you have uh, Lois and uh, Eunice, Timothy's grandmother and mother, were Jews and had uh, known what it meant to be Jewish. They had come to believe in Jesus as Messiah and worship him and were raising Timothy in the faith. But Timothy would not be recognized as a Jew because his father was not a Jew. You imagine the difficulty. Now, perhaps Timothy's father is alive, in which case he certainly is not crazy about what's happening with Timothy, but he's probably dead because we would expect him to object to what Paul wants to do with Timothy to circumcise him moving forward. He wouldn't want any part of that. And so we see a picture here that I think is a great encouragement of two women who are laboring. Either, uh, they're either single in terms of being the only believing parent, or they're single literally because they're widowed, and they labor to raise their son in the faith even though he is somewhat ostracized from his community. Why would you do that? Why would you labor to such an extent, particularly before a God and a Messiah who you might have feel had not really done you right, both in an unbelieving spouse right, and in terms of not allowing him to live to take care of you in the midst of your life? The only reason somebody labors in that way is hope. Hope that this will amount to something through the work of the Spirit that I cannot produce myself nor can I guarantee myself. And so even in this act that we see Paul stumble, right, providentially upon Timothy and be amazed at this young man of faith, so impressed that he wants to take him with him, we see in that very labor the hope of two women, either literally or figuratively single, laboring on behalf of their children to raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord, seeking to raise Timothy as a lover of Jesus. And for women in our congregation who are either literally single or figuratively single, because they're the only believer in their household, your labors are not in vain. As you hope for what God will do in the midst of your labors, be encouraged this morning. Timothy ends up being one of the greatest saints in the history of the church. And so we first see, first of all, what it is to hope in the Spirit. But secondly, we see what it is to have humility in the Spirit. How do we see that? Well, uh, perhaps sadly a little bit for Timothy... Everyone knows that Timothy is a, the son of a Greek father. It points that out directly in verse 3. And as a result of that, Timothy wants to have him circumcised. Now, or Paul wants to have Timothy circumcised. Now, this is somewhat confusing for a number of reasons. We just got done with Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15 began with a division in Antioch, the church in Antioch, saying, should we circumcise Gentile believers or not? And they couldn't settle the issue. So they sent two delegations to Jerusalem. They go to Jerusalem and say, should we circumcise Gentile believers or not? Both places engage in prolonged debate and argument until they eventually come to the conclusion, and the answer is no. Gentile believers do not need to be circumcised. And here suddenly is Paul deciding to circumcise Timothy. Now it's even 
more odd because Paul will say very strong things against those who want to circumcise others, Gentile believers in Corinthians, in Galatians, and in Galatians 2, he actually goes out of his way to point out that he did not feel compelled to have Titus circumcised. So for all this talk about not needing to be circumcised, and for all Paul's attacks against those who would advocate such a position, why in the world do we see him go out of his way to circumcise Timothy before he takes him with him on his missionary journey? Well, the case seems to be uh, this. That when someone is advocating that someone has to obey the law and be circumcised in order to be God, part of God's people, Paul emphatically denies that and contradicts it and says, absolutely not. You do not have to be circumcised or obeying some part of the law in order to be part of God's people. But if the opportunity should arise where Paul can remove a stumbling stone to the gospel and engage a degree of humility so that the story of Jesus might be told and more people, more Jews will listen to Timothy and that won't, his circumcision won't be an issue and therefore more people will have the potential to convert to Christianity, then Paul, for the sake of mission, is willing to do that. We understand what he says in 1 Corinthians 9, I became all things to all people, right, that the gospel might have the best hearing, right, that nothing would get in the way of someone being exposed to, to the story of Jesus. I think that's a radical degree of humility, to really not only lay down one's pride, but in in this case, to actually undergo something that's painful and hard and, and unnecessary in order that the gospel would have the best hearing. Sometimes we are a bit proud in our faith, I think. Too proud to engage a real level of humility. Sometimes we're sheepish around others, particularly those that we think perhaps are a bit smarter than we are or have it more together or are part of a group that we would like to belong to I'm not necessarily going to lead with the gospel because I don't want to disenfranchise myself. I don't want to engage that humility because it might cost me something. I was reminded about the power of humility in the hands of the Spirit in uh, the story of Pamela Perillo. Pamela uh, grew up in the late 50s and early 1960s, and she had a very sad childhood. Her mother was a nighttime waitress and uh, was addicted to drugs, and at a very young age, she ran off with the cook at the restaurant at which she worked. As a result of that, Pamela's dad turned to alcohol, and as a result of that, he treated her very unkindly. Pamela decided at the age of 10 to run away from home and would spend the next three years in and out of eight different foster homes. And by 13, she ran to Mexico with a 19-year-old, uh, to be married, and she was carrying his child. She would become addicted to drugs herself. She would go um, and sadly would lose several children as a result. Eventually, she finds herself in Texas, high on PCP with the boys she was at with at the time. And they uh, hitchhiked a ride with an individual, and they noticed that he had a large wad of cash on his person. And so they decided to take his life and take his cash and fled to Denver. It was in Denver that Pamela became overwhelmed uh, with guilt. She was incredibly convicted, and so convicted that she decided that she was going to turn herself in. And she walked straight to the police station and confessed her crimes, was immediately extradited to Texas, 
uh, was tried in a hurried fashion and at 24 was uh, sentenced to death. And as of 2018, had been on uh, death row for 40 years before her sentence was commuted to life. Now Pamela looks at this moment of this conviction that came upon her in Denver and says that was the beginning of God getting a hold of me. That the spirit pressed down on me and, I, and all of a sudden what I had been engaged in and wasn't thinking about at all became something that was wrong and something from which I had to repent. And Pamela converts in a profound way in prison and spends these 40 years on death row being essentially a minister to the convicts in prison, sharing the gospel, loving them, encouraging them. Right? A remarkable life of ministry where she could have so easily been given over to bitterness. God, how did you allow these things to happen to me in my childhood? Instead, she receives the grace of Jesus and is so overwhelmed that she ministers to these people all around us. Now, just from, the, from this part of the story alone, you could easily say, you know, it's humility because I know if I, if I saw and met Pam on the street, I would probably be judgmental. Right? You, you take a look at her and you... That's a hard life. Right? I don't know what you're up to, but nothing good. And yet she's having a, you know, this profound effect for the kingdom, this profound uh, ministry of reconciliation amongst those that Jesus commanded us to go and serve. Now that's, that's not even the best part or the part that got me the most, uh, that made me laugh the most at myself in the midst of this story. Years go by, and Pamela is always struggling with the nature, uh, with her faith. She always feels, could God really truly love me and accept me, right? Something that many believers feel and struggle with over time. And eventually, another woman comes into death row uh, named Faye. And Faye is, is a very hardened woman. And for some reason, Pamela just has it on her heart that she really wants to see uh, Faye come to Jesus. And so labors to share with her the gospel, reads the Bible with her, and Faye wants no part of what Pamela is selling in terms of Christianity. Until one day, Teen Challenge comes to the prison. And Teen Challenge, a bunch of teenagers, put on a puppet show. And Faye is reduced to rubble. Utterly broken by the gospel she receives through a teen puppet show. I personally do not have a high degree of affection for teen puppet shows. Part of me inside cringes, right? And I think, why would we, and I'm not suggesting we go out and start a teen puppet show ministry, right? but I am pointing out to you the judgmentalism, the critique in my own heart. We need to be much more sophisticated. We need to come across as much more intelligent. We need to be respectable. We need other people to be jealous of us. Right? All of this nonsense when Faye is converted right, and reduced by the gospel expressed through such a simple and radically humble means. It's a way in which to follow the Spirit is to be willing to embrace a humility. For Timothy, it's circumcision. For uh, Faye, it was to be reached through this puppet ministry, which ultimately was a lesson to Pamela, who was incredibly encouraged by face faith and realize that God works as he will and if he can love faith through this ministry then he certainly loved her and she was encouraged and bolstered in her faith as a result it is actually a remarkable thing to be encouraged by the humility that is cultivated through and in the work of the spirit because we are reminded that we 
not only do we not have to be more than we are, but that it's exhausting to try to pretend that we're more than we are. And so we're free from uh, that labor in that sense. And there should be a willingness to lay down our commitment to image in order to see the gospel move forward, to be all things to all people. Thirdly, we see that there's life in the Spirit. Now, if you look at verse 5, it tells us that as Paul is bouncing around what we would call Turkey today, the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in numbers daily. Well, why did this happen? Why were they being strengthened and increasing in numbers daily? If we back up to verse 4, it says that as they're making their way through uh, the Mediterranean, that they're delivering to the churches for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. Well, what decisions are we talking about by the elders in Jerusalem? We're talking about the Jerusalem decree that happened just in chapter 15. Right? This big debate that happens around beginning with circumcision. And James finally gets up and concludes the matter saying, We expect all of the Gentile believers to abstain from food polluted by idols from uh, food that still has its blood in it, from food that's been strangled, and from sexual immorality. We say, that is a weird list. Especially if you're starting from a debate about the Mosaic Law, and you get to these four kind of random and quirky commands, it's very odd until you realize that the place where all four of those things happened together was the pagan temple. And what James is saying to the churches is, as a follower of Jesus, we expect you to begin to withdraw from the pagan temple. Now, that was a very big expectation. We're not talking about a low bar of faithfulness. We're talking about um, the pagan temple was where you went to be blessed in any aspect of life. It's where you went to actually pursue life. If I couldn't conceive and I wanted to have a child, I would go to the temple and make sacrifice. If I was, my child was having a wedding and I wanted their wedding to be blessed, I'd go. And if I could afford it, the wedding would be at the temple and we would make sacrifices to the gods. Right? If I was opening a business and you were a potential business partner, we'd have a business lunch at the temple. I'd make a sacrifice to the gods. We'd all feast on the meat. And that's how things happened. The pagan temple was the center of society in the first century. And so to begin to say to the churches, we want you to begin to withdraw from that, would have been not only challenging in terms of I'm missing out on a lot of fun, but scary. How am I going to conduct business? How am I going to maintain relationships? Uh, my best friend, Bob's daughter, is getting married in the parties at the temple. And I, even if I go, I can't participate in the sacrifice and I can't eat the meat. How am I going to maintain this friendship when it appears that I'm not interested in his daughter's marriage being blessed? And we're talking about huge social ramifications for the early church going through and making these decisions. And we, we explored last week it's worth just repeating and thinking about a little bit more because we're talking about the life that the Spirit brings, which we see in the strengthening and the growing of the churches. There's being strengthened and growing because they're participating and they're obeying this command that they should be withdrawing from the pagan temples, which causes us to ask, well, where do we participate in the pagan temple? Where might we withdraw that we might be strengthened and grow in number and if we don't, right, then we're really participating in the wrong temple. We were, uh, we were down at a big campground on the river, and uh, river culture is something that certainly I had never experienced until moving to Texas, uh, where lots of very large trucks on very large wheels pull in, 
and lots of classic rock, uh, and Journey is played, and uh, people hang out, and then uh, float in the river, and, and some people drink lots and lots and lots of alcohol. And this is, is river culture, I guess. I don't even know if that's a term, but we'll call it that for now. So all well and good. But imagine, imagine your typical Texas good old boy, right? His highlight of his, his summer, his year, is either hunting or fishing or being on the weekend on the river, right? Now, now that's where he thinks he finds life, right? That's his pagan temple. Now, he doesn't, there are lots of pagan temples. And there's the pagan temple of success, he doesn't buy into that. He's not interested in that God. He doesn't want to work 70 hours a week. He doesn't care if you give him a new title. He, doesn't, he just needs enough money for his fishing rod and his gun and, and the tube and his truck. And he's happy. So he doesn't buy into the pagan temple of success. He's not consumed with the success of his kids. Don't figure life out. They'll do just fine. Right? That's how you make it through this world. But when it comes to where, where he finds life, he's very serious about making sure he has the money and the time for fun. Because that's where, that's the whole point. This life is short, you better go out and enjoy yourself. Now let's say further that Texas good old boy is following Jesus, but starts to get really serious about Jesus. And suddenly he has to ask hard questions. He starts to, to think about his faith. He starts to heed the spirit. And he says, you know, I take fun very seriously but I say, I confess that I follow a man of sorrows. There's a real tension inherent in that. If I think all of my life comes from having fun, but Jesus certainly, you, you really can't get away reading the gospel and concluding Jesus was all about fun. right? So you're going to have trouble as you're working through the gospels. And the tension increases for him and he begins to say, you know, to really follow Jesus, I have to start to realize, I think I have to start to walk away from some of my pagan temple, some of my fun, and instead, well, the, the, the last place I want to go is a place where that doesn't have fun and is in tune with pain and suffering. So he decides maybe to go, I'm going to go work at a camp for children with severe disabilities. And he hates it. He dreads it. He, gets, he feels nauseous even at the prospect of going to that place. Why? Because it it undermines the complete narrative of his pagan temple, right? If life is all about having fun and he goes to a place where he believes that the people there are incapable of having fun, how does he reconcile that with a good and loving God? He's undone. And all of a sudden has to rethink everything he knows about Jesus and what it means to follow Jesus and has to begin to grow and understand that there's actually joy and freedom and maturity and understanding uh, that, that sorrows not only are part of this life but are intended by God to actually shape us and grow us up in him. And if Jesus came to suffer in order that we may have life, maybe part of his story, Texas good old boy, is that he would suffer on behalf of others that they also might have life. And he becomes transformed, right? He begins to understand that there's life in the spirit and he becomes strengthened as an individual. Why? Because the story of Jesus is stronger than any story of a pagan temple, right? There's only one true God who dispenses one true grace. And to live in that grace will always trump living in an artificial or false grace. And this is why the churches are growing as well. Because even in our context, uh, more people than you would think are very well aware that their pagan temple does not offer life. Right? They've been going to it for years. They've been sacrificing at it for years. Right? 
And what are they doing? They're drinking four times as much as they did 10 years ago. Why? Because they, they don't know what else to do. But when they see you, right, living out the story of the living temple, which is the body of Christ, then right, something, there's something that they haven't seen before, and there's life there. And they eventually, by God's grace, come to a point and say, I sure know my temple is not working. So maybe I will listen and hear about the story of your temple. And that's why the church is growing. Right? The people are ready to see the story of Jesus put on display by those who worship and live as part of his temple. And that is the life of the Spirit. Before that, we see the leading of the Spirit. And you've got to love this. I love it when, when the, the greatest saints in the history of the church get it wrong. It makes me feel much better about my own walk of faith. And so how do we see the leading of the Spirit? Well, we see it in a couple of ways. Let me remind you that in Acts 15, we've seen it because two groups of Christians in Antioch disagreed. Should Gentile believers be circumcised? Some said yes, some said no. Then there was the same disagreement in the Jerusalem church. And they have to argue and debate it at length. And only after James has come to his conclusion, which was the conclusion of the, whole, of the church at the time, does it say that the Spirit has led in this? But think about the disagreements and the arguments and the meandering. Right? They did not initially simply arrive at the proper conclusion. They had to work there. They had to go through the argumentation in order to arrive in that place. That's how God would have them wrestle and be forged as a community. And then here, if you begin to look at verse 6, we see that Paul is trying to get it to places that the Spirit won't let him go. In verse... Uh, Six, the Holy Spirit forbids him from speaking the word in Asia, which again presumes that he was trying to go and speak the word in Asia. In verse uh, seven, it says that Paul attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. And finally, he gets a dream of a Macedonian man saying, please come and help us. And Paul concludes, oh, God is calling us, the Spirit is calling us to go to Macedonia. That's what's next on the list. But Paul's gotten it wrong twice. He's tried to go to Asia, no. He's tried to go to Bithynia, no. Macedonia is going to be the winner at this time. Now, why does the Spirit say no to certain places and yes? Uh, that's way above our pay grade, right? It's directing the unfolding of redemptive history as God wants it to unfold. But the point is that in each case, the proper conclusion is not arrived at immediately, nor is the proper location arrived at immediately. But there is a meandering, there's a willing to move in a direction even if that direction is wrong. And I think it's a good reminder for us that, you know, the old cliche, the bicycle has to be moving in order to be steered. You have to be moving in order for the Spirit to lead. The worst thing that you can do is simply to sit around and, and think to yourself every day, uh, oh, I really feel like God would have me to do something more for missions. Or I really think God is laying youth on my heart. Uh, but I'm really not sure how to go about any of these things, so I'm just going to wait until God sends me a letter in the mail and tells me exactly what he wants me to do. Friend, the Spirit is already giving you an inclination to participate in the kingdom, and you should heed that inclination and begin to move. It's not to say that you're going to arrive at the proper location or the proper conclusion the first time out, right? but that allow, your act of faith will require that you become more dependent on God, and in that dependence, the Spirit will move you to engage that which he has for you. The Spirit will lead us to accomplish what he desires for us to accomplish. And lastly, fifth, 
is the power of the Spirit. When Paul and company eventually end up in Philippi, which is one of the leading cities of Macedonia, uh, they go on the Sabbath to the riverside. It was common, if there was a river in the area, for Jews to gather for prayer at the riverside. And there he finds a group of Jews. He begins to preach the gospel. Lydia begins to pay careful attention and will convert and become an important woman in the history of the church. But notice what it says of her uh, conversion. If you look at the last part of verse 14, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. It wasn't the eloquence of Paul's words. It wasn't that he had the argument that trumped Lydia's Judaism. What, what transformed Lydia? It wasn't Paul's power, it was the Spirit's power. It's the Spirit that makes the deaf hear. It is the Spirit that makes the blind see. And that's profoundly freeing for you and I in terms of sometimes we put a great amount of pressure on ourselves to go in either to evangelize someone and to speak the right words about Jesus or to go in and to change a situation. I'm going to go and I'm going to offer this counsel and these people are going to change in this way or I'm going to save this marriage or save this person. You don't have the power to change anyone. I, I, wish, I wish we did. In some ways, well... You know, it's one of those things where you say, I wish we did, but if you think about it, you'd think, no, we really wish we wouldn't because we'd inevitably change them the way we want them to be changed, which isn't necessarily the way God wants them to be changed, which is why it's really good that God retains this authority and power for himself. And the Spirit will, it will execute change as it occurs, which calls on us only to be faithful in the proclamation of the word and being faithful and obedient to the Spirit. All right, so if you were hanging in there, that there's five aspects of the Spirit on display in these vignettes of the church that are strung together by Luke. The hope of the Spirit, the humility of the Spirit, the life of the Spirit, the leading of the Spirit, and the power of the Spirit. Well, what does this mean for you? How good are you at heeding the Spirit? How good are you at listening to His voice? And how do you evaluate such a thing? How do you even take stock? I've, I've heard people over the years tell me that they really knew the Spirit and were intimate with them, and they were sure that the Spirit was telling them to go away from their family and live by themselves for six or 12 months just to get away. I thought, probably not. But um, So it's difficult sometimes, right? Uh, sometimes we can delude ourselves into thinking that we perhaps hear the voice of the Spirit and perhaps don't. And in order to take stock and to measure... Uh, always a good place to go is Galatians 5 where Paul says the works of the flesh are these sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies and things like these. Did any of those reach out and grab you in terms of your participation in them? He goes on to say that the fruits of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. What fruit or what work do you need to lay down in your life? Because it is the opposite of the work of the Spirit. And which works or which fruits might you cultivate, as Paul says in verse 25, by keeping in step with the Spirit? By heeding his voice, by following him, what will inevitably result? 
those fruits that Paul just mentions will become more and more apparent in your life. The inverse is true and also a good measure. To the degree that you see a lack of the fruits of the Spirit is a very good indicator to the degree that you lack the Spirit working in your life. So as we come to the table, repent this morning. Lay down those works in which you've engaged. Right? Seek to come and step with the Spirit and pray that He might cultivate the good fruits of His work in your life. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that You have not left us alone or without counsel, but that Your Spirit guides and directs. We thank You for the work of the Spirit in the formation of the church and pray that we would be formed and built up as a faithful people as we heed the leading and direction of your spirit. We pray that we would be a spirit-directed people. We ask for your grace in this in Christ's name. Amen.